podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. This episode is about emotional intelligence, self-awareness, emotional management, impulse control and assertiveness, empathy, and relationship management. My guest is Michael Benner, the author of Fearless Intelligence. His book is about learning to recognize the destructive impact of heartache, irritation, and frustration using awareness and intelligence also how to understand the hidden meaning of our hurtful emotions in order to release them. As presented by Michael, personal development strategies include self-awareness and emotional intelligence, stress management, critical thinking, and relationship management. Beside his BA degree in journalism and broadcast media management, Michael has a lifetime certification as an instructor of communication arts. Michael Banner is well known throughout Southern California for his popular human potential talk show programs. Here is the interview with Michael Banner. In your own words, who is Michael Banner? Oh, you're starting with the hardest question of all. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. I'm a person who loves people. I uh, love animals and I love plants. and But people are absolutely fascinating. I'm often more interested when I meet someone new in who they are than they are interested in who they are. I, I think people uh, are much more fascinating than even they may know. And I, I think that's what drives me. It's uh, more emotional than mental. It's an attraction or an affinity I have for why people well, why they think the way they think, but even more importantly, why they feel the way they feel. And, of course, the two uh, interplay with each other. A thought stimulates a feeling, our feelings stimulate our thoughts. But to think about thinking, 
and to be aware of our feelings, to to be able to take a step back and watch ourselves think and feel from an elevated perspective. Not only is that necessary for us to understand ourselves, but that then creates a level of empathy that allows us to then recognize ourselves and other people, how we're similar or perhaps how we're dissimilar. But empathy is a function of self-awareness. And so in order to be interested in other people and follow up that interest, one has to understand themselves. That's what gets me out of bed every morning, Valerie. That's, that's what makes me tick. That's great. Yeah, thank you. What are feelings and what are thoughts? Well, thoughts tend to be judgments. Um, they also contain ideation. And what we call thinking is actually several different processes. There is uh, what brain and mind researchers call task oriented thinking, when we apply our thoughts to a particular task. Maybe we're balancing our checkbook to figure out how much money we've got left in the checking account. Maybe we're making a list. Maybe we're working on setting a goal or making a decision. Those are all task-oriented thoughts. And most of them are logical. And most logic is deductive. By that we mean our reasoning goes from a general concept to a specific. Logic and analytical thinking and reasoning is generally a process of reduction or subtraction, breaking things down. Like uh, my, uh, my machine doesn't work, so I'm going to take it apart. That's the way we approach most problems. The process of going in the other direction from specific to general is a whole different kind of thinking that most of us have never been trained in. We could call that creativity, or sometimes it's referred to as inductive logic. If we have a number of details and we want to induce some overarching connection, what do these things all have in common? What are their shared traits? Most of us don't know how to do that. And so people who are good at it uh, draw upon their intuitive nature. They sit back, they take a breath, they relax, they open themselves and stand receptive to the ideation that I mentioned before, to the, to the epiphany or the aha experience. But it's sort of, you know, we're, we're sort of victims of that. Most of us don't know how to enhance it. Feelings, on the other hand, stand between some thought process and behavior. Feelings, emotional feelings are the interface between what we think and how we act. And it's a middle ground. Many times we behave just because of a feeling. We behave reflexively. Hey, why did you do that? What were you thinking? Well, I did it because I felt like it. And then 
maybe I thought about it later. <laughs> but ideally, we want to go thought-feeling, thought-feeling, back and forth like a ping-pong game. And then when we're ready to take action, it should be a clear, specific thought as an energy driven by an emotion, which is our motive. That's the force. That's, that's what drives the ideation of thinking. So it should be thought, feeling, and then behavior. And part of becoming more conscious and more aware, or I could even say more mature, is learning to behave in that order. That's really the formula for creating form, is a, a clear, specific idea followed by some sort of passion that creates an outcome. An idea that doesn't have an emotion behind it that we don't care about may be a great idea, but it just sits there. Nothing really happens to yeah, it. Yeah, right. So I think of thoughts as being like the steering wheel of a car that determines direction. Fear is the brake. Any positive emotion is the accelerator, and the action is the car moves forward. Uh, that fully answers your question, but yes, yeah, where I would begin with that. Right. Um, that leads to my next question. What is emotional intelligence? Well, it's basically understanding emotions. Why do I feel this way? And then as we better understand ourselves based on our feelings, it's a lot like seeing emotional feelings as symptoms of our condition. And there's a very important concept here. Uh, most of us go beyond codependent. We're not only codependent. We are, <laughs> we are victims of feelings that in most cases we believe have been done to us by other people. I'm afraid most people do not understand that their emotional feelings are responses that come from us. So if you say, well, he made me angry, you have to point out, well, what that person said, though it did sound rather insulting, would not have made you angry unless you're confused about the truth of it. So... When we really know who we are and we understand ourselves, emotional intelligence, then we don't have to accept insults. We get bulletproof. And we can even learn to look at the person who insults us with a certain degree of compassion and say, well, that, even say, even if only to ourselves, say, well, that's, that's pretty pathetic that you're trying to bring me down uh, by insulting me, but it doesn't work. I've heard that before. In fact, I used to say that about myself, but I now know better. And so, you know, I just don't accept your insults. And wow, that's liberating. Sometimes I'll say to a client or a group of students, it's like tug of war and you cannot play the game. You can give them the rope and say, here, this is your game, take it home. You can have the rope, I'm not pulling. See, I refuse to play. So an emotion has a stimulus, and 
it may be external. It may be somebody said something really nasty and mean to me, really hurt me deep inside. But that's our hurts. And so we have to think of it as like, you poked me where I was already bruised. And I said, you hurt me. And they said, why? I poked you three or four times and it didn't hurt. And I say, well, yeah, but the last time you poked me, you hit me in this bruise. It only hurts when you touch it. So you hurt me. And the guy says, no, no, I didn't hurt. You were already hurt. Well, both things are true. When people make us feel hurtful feelings, I hesitate to call them negative because they have value and benefit. Yes, wisdom, right? When somebody stimulates a hurtful feeling, we're participating in that. There's a gift in that. There's a lesson to be learned. And rather than getting angry and directing your hostility at the person that poked you where you were already bruised, to say, well, that's my bruise. I'm going to own that. And if it's an abusive relationship, you may want to back out of it. There's no sense in getting repeatedly poked. Yeah, right. Once you discover the bruise and take some responsibility and ownership for the opportunity it represents to understand yourself better. So I think that's basically where emotional intelligence starts. With understanding our own emotions, right? Understanding it, everything seems to go back to self-knowledge to me. Self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-love. So everything starts with us. Well, it's true, and we often see in uh, Eastern philosophy the image of the drop in the pool that then radiates little ripples outward. That's the way we live our lives. And although life is a two-way street and there are those things that come toward you, most people think of their lives as 90% what's done to them and maybe at most 10% how they respond. But we can initiate our lives. We don't have to play victim all the time. We can see life as coming not only from us, Valerie, but through us and out into the world. So, of course, it starts with self, and not in an egotistical way, but we are um, channels or vessels or media for a spiritual energy that comes through us, and then we shape it and form it and decide what to do with this life force, and then give it to the world, make our contribution to being here. Right. You mentioned spiritual. Let me ask you this question. And not only ask this question later on, but um, since you said the word spiritual, let me ask you now. What is to be spiritual? What is spirituality? Well, again, f fundamentally, I believe it's just another way of saying energy that we obviously are material beings in a material world and we appear to be separate. That's largely an illusion of appearance. Uh, nothing is separate from an energy or a spiritual point of view. Spirit is rooted in the Latin and the Greek meaning breath. For example, to inspire means to breathe into inspiration. 
to conspire is to breathe with other people. So spirit is breath, and breath is an ancient allegory for spiritual energy. Um, the Old Testament for the Judeo-Christians that look in Genesis in the beginning, uh, God is referred to as a word. The word, in the beginning there was the word. Well, again, there is breath. When people use the law of attraction to manifest opportunity, circumstance and situation, relationships and events in their lives, they begin by declaring it, by speaking it, or at least writing it down. These are the initial steps of creation, and we're made by all accounts in the image of this creative energy. So energy or spirit is really the same thing. Uh, Einstein said energy equals mass at the speed of light squared. That's the same thing a spiritual person might say. Spirit is the source of all material. There is spiritual and physical on opposite sides of the equation, but they're really the same thing. And Einstein says, yeah, only instead of calling it spirit and matter, or father and mother, mater, madre, right? I'm going to call it energy and mass, as many empirical scientists have done, but it's the same thing. You talk about fearless intelligence. So I have two questions. What is fearless intelligence, and why did you write a book about it? Well, because, frankly, fear makes us stupid. <laughs> and so fearlessness would make us more intelligent. Fearless intelligence is expanded awareness, insight, and understanding. I'm not saying those are three different things or four different things. Fearless intelligence is my way of talking about expanded awareness, which is insight and understanding, both of which stand above knowledge. Often people will talk about the importance of knowledge and to know thyself, for example. Uh, but again, we're talking about Einstein. He has a great quote. He said uh, in one of his books, any fool can know things. The secret is to understand them. So think of all the things we learned in school that we know or that we knew, but never really understood. I know how to run a microwave, but I don't really know that I fully understand what's going on inside the microwave oven, right? Uh, you and I are, are using technology that we know how to operate, but gosh, uh, I don't think either of us really understand. <laughs> no. I mean, I All don't. <laughs> inside our computer. So, uh, I don't think I want to understand, Michael. <laughs> Way too complex. Do we need to. Right. Do we need. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, right, right. We don't need to. Right. We have other people that love to do that for us. So, that's great. Uh, that's the way it works. So, we want to not only know ourselves, we want to understand ourselves, and then not only know others, but understand others. And there's no end to that. Understanding is not a destination. 
It's a never-ending process. There's always more you can know about yourself. And better said, always more than that, that we can understand about ourselves. And same with other people. Understanding, uh, this is very Socratic. Socrates uh, was asked at his trial for corrupting the youth of Athens, uh, why are you said to be the wisest man in all of Greece? And Socrates reportedly said, well, it's very simple because you folks believe you know things and you're fools, and I know how much I do not understand, and that makes me wise. <laughs> so when we approach life, we have to think of it as an unbounded ocean that is infinitely deep and broad, and that there's always more to know and understand. And and that's why we have a certain amount of contempt for a know-it-all, because they don't know it all, and they certainly don't understand it all. I'm always wary of somebody who calls himself or herself a master. <laughs> to me, anybody who really was a master would never call themselves a master. They would be humble, not arrogant. And there's a lot of people in the spiritual community that are very englamored and quite pompous and uh, taken over. I mean, the ego will dress up like spirit very readily. And, oh, aren't I holy? And aren't I superior to you from holiness? And, oh, I know all these Sanskrit words, so I must be superior to you. Well, that to me is prima facie evidence that you're phony. You, you couldn't be real or you'd be humble and wise and not full of yourself, you know. What is the difference between understanding and having wisdom? Well, wisdom is that quality of understanding that I think there's certain qualities of wisdom. Let me say it this way. Certain qualities of understanding that constitute wisdom. One I've already mentioned, which is to recognize that all separation is an illusion. That's a big one. And the idea of spiritual love plays a role in that for love. And I don't mean emotional love. I don't mean simply a uh, erotic attraction as sweet and wonderful and magical as that may be. Uh, that would not explain, for example, Christ's admonition to love your enemies. That never makes sense if you believe love is an emotion. Love is not an emotion. It has emotional quality. It has a feeling that goes with it. But actually, more precisely, there's a whole range of feelings that go with love. Love can torment us. It can be, uh, it can create agony. And uh, that old rock song by Nazareth, Love Hurts. And we think of love, somebody says, define love. 99% of people would say, oh, it's warm and fuzzy and present and it feels safe and it, you know, what about heartache isn't that a function of love if you didn't love that person it wouldn't break your heart right 
you wouldn't be so vulnerable, but for the fact you let them into your heart. And, and so from agony to ecstasy and back again, there's a whole range or spectrum of feelings that go with being loved, loving, and, and lovable. So I think of love, I like to capitalize it in the larger context as it used to be. Um, it means charity, which also used to be capitalized hundreds of years ago and meant the oneness of all things. So when we understand that life is more than the appearance of matter or physical dense, solid stuff, which all appears to be separate, everything is separate. That's why we're so lonely and alienated and and, and feeling detached and spend our whole lives reaching out for connection. If we understood that we're primarily energy, then the universe is, una means one. It's verse means spinning around. Universe is one thing spinning around. It's one giant magnetic field. There's only one of us here. But just as we have one person has two arms, ten fingers, and ten toes. We think we're the finger, that we're separated, and we're not. We're part of a hand, which is connected to an arm, which has a body. And even you hug a tree, and it feels, you know, or pet a cat, or scratch a dog behind the ears. You feel that connection, or you go into nature, and it's so beautiful, and it restores and renews you because it's real and you feel that connection. That's what love does. It connects every seemingly separate thing to every other seemingly separate thing. And so it's a word for peace and stillness and silence and receptivity and safety and fearlessness. And that's the most intelligent level of awareness that anybody can possibly attain. And from there we evolve and understand more and more and more. Who do you know that lives this life this way, with this kind of awareness and connectivity to everything? Would you say you do? Well, most of the time, yes, but it's a practice. Uh, and when we say practice, most people think, oh, you're talking about your meditation practice. Yeah, but when I talk to my wife of 30 years, that's a practice. When I go to the refrigerator and make decisions about what to eat, there's a struggle that goes on inside me. And to make better food choices is a practice. To become aware of my breathing, and I discover that it's rather shallow and rapid and indicates a level of anxiety that I didn't know was there. And I choose instead to uh, take a slower, deeper breath or two. That's a practice. When I learn to be mindful in everything that I do, when I walk, I walk. I can't always do that. Sometimes when I walk, I have to pay attention to where I'm going and remember what, why am I going here. And there are 
many, many distractions, we're supposed to eat mindfully. When you eat, do nothing but be mindful of chewing and the food nourishing you. And, but you can't do that every meal. You mm-hmm, right. want to <laughs> spouse or your friends or tell a joke or a story you heard. And so uh, life is a practice. And uh, the best of us must, again, remain humble know that we're all students. None of us are Christed. I've never met a Christed or fully realized person. I've met people that held themselves out as having attained enlightenment, but I've also seen them become angry in an instant. In my 40 years of doing radio, I've interviewed all kinds of swamis and gurus and mystics and holy men and women. And many of them are quite advanced in their practice, but none of them have attained any kind of fully realized level. They all get confused. They're all open to being emotionally hurt. They all have uh, needs and desires that they've not yet released. And so I think it's uh, best for us to recognize that uh, everyone's on a path, the least among us, the people that care least about others and seem to be the meanest, most selfish people. They're on a path too. They may be further down the mountain, but it's best we don't judge. Just concern ourselves with, with where am I on my path? Because... Uh, it's a long way to the top of the mountain. We, <laughs> we've all got a long way to go. <laughs> Is it possible to become fully realized in this um, lifetime for any of us? Would that be a destination to arrive? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't think so. Not in form. I think the consciousness that predates incarnation and that continues on when we shed this coil um, is in the process of going home again, like the prodigal son, uh, to return to being fully conscious and aware. But that's the Godhead. And I, I just... I, I, I know there are people that have held themselves out or their devotees have said, this is a fully realized being. And I would not argue with them. I don't need them not to be. But I've seen flaws in so many holy men. Um, think of Rajneesh, for example. I learned a lot from Rajneesh. I don't know who he is. And yet he... Well, he was a he was a humanities professor in his youth in India, and he came to the West with a teaching, and became very very popular. Uh, started a community in Oregon, and the next thing you know, he was stockpiling machine guns, and he owned twenty nine Rolls Royces. 
And Elizabeth Clare Prophet did the same thing. The next thing you know, she builds this community in Colorado someplace, and they're stockpiling machine guns for the end times. And it's like, well, that's not very spiritual. How could you be so deluded? And yet all of her writing is about the ascended masters and the great wisdom and love and forgiveness and and what are all the machine guns for? Who are you going to kill in the loving place? And uh, Muktananda and, and Gandhi and their affairs. And so I, I, I'm just very wary of that. I refuse to be caught. I feel it in me. I feel a pull. Uh, uh, Alice Bailey calls it glamour. There's an englamouring where where ego can dress up like spirit and play the role and delude a guru or a master into believing that they are realized. And then all their devotees say they're fully realized. But the master is within each of us. The Christ Buddha nature is in everybody. Every single breathing creature, every, every person, I believe, every animal, every plant, even the mineral kingdom is imbued with divinity. There, nothing could exist that isn't immersed in the beauty of this one verse spinning around, this universe of energy, this great cloud or ocean of, of energy. So we're all on the path. We're all spiritual beings at our essence, and yet we're all growing and there is no, I just don't think there's any benefit in thinking you're going to arrive anyplace. There's, there's always something over the horizon that you haven't figured out yet. Yet, you mentioned going home. Where is home? Well, there's a concept of the Mandela, the wheel of life. And... The idea that things have a beginning and an end, we usually think of in a linear way. But if instead you think of it as cyclic, uh, you start at 12 o'clock, you live a few thousand incarnations, you come all the way around back to 12 o'clock again. So... I presume that the goal is for the divine source to express itself in a myriad of unique forms, from the tiniest microbe through the most complex human being, and we're still evolving, so come back in uh, 10,000 years, I'm sure there will be human beings that are as different from who we are now on average as we are from the animal kingdom. We're not at the end of the evolutionary cycle by any means. In fact, in, in some ways, if you read ancient literature, you can see that we are devolving. In many ways, we are less aware than people were 2,000 years ago. I'm particularly concerned with the large number of people that do not read. If you don't read, you're, 
You're not exercising your brain. You're not thinking. And what passes for conversation from many people is so shallow, you'll never get your ankles wet. And it's very distressing because this is a beautifully complex universe. And if we read the great women and men who have written the wonderful literature and the poetry and the philosophy and contributed so much to our culture, we'll realize what we've been missing. But that's pushed on us in high school when we're too young. We don't have any interest in reading the classics in high school. And then if you go to college and get a liberal arts education, maybe you get one more chance to read the classics, a couple of humanities classes, ideally, some literature. But most of us are so oriented toward the material world. We want to be successful, which to most people means I want money, I want stuff. All of which is impermanent. All of which you'll lose. Everything you buy. And Mm -hmm. and further, all of your relationships. Your children don't stay children. They go into into adulthood. And that's difficult for many parents who want them to be little children forevermore. Uh, And then they get older and they die and our friends die and our grandparents first and then our parents and then our friends die. And, you know, a dog only lives eight to 12 years. My God, you think twice before you go get a second dog because, you know, you're going to lose them in a decade. So if all of our material goods and in all of our loving relationships and in loss, then what kind of fools are we if we invest in that? Instead, we should invest in something that we can take with us, expanded awareness, higher consciousness, and understanding of what it means to be a loving, compassionate, kind, caring human being committed not to self, from an ego point of view anyway, but to self from a spiritual point of view so as to be of service to others. And that love we will take with us and carry with us. And it reduces the number of times we have to incarnate and the suffering that goes with that. Um, It's quite remarkable to me how many people strive for happiness and success when all the philosophies and on a deeper level, all of the religions are very upfront in saying life is about suffering. And the point of the suffering, I mean, Buddhism, the first noble truth, life is suffering. Christ on the cross. Most religious prophets suffer greatly. And what's the point of all of that? And the fear, let's go back to fearless intelligence, and the fear that goes with the hurt and the suffering, because that's that's really the root of all hurt and suffering, is, is fear. And fear is not danger. Fear is what we don't understand. Very important concept. So what's the point of all of that? Well, it fuels evolution. It promotes growth and expansion. And that's going home again from fully realized 
to born naked and ignorant and then die and reborn and die and reborn and die and reborn, all the while growing and learning that our lives are about serving other people. That's the most important thing. What have you done for other people? That's success. Not, hey, look at my new Beamer. Oh, did you see this house? I've got seven bedrooms. I only need one, but I got six empty bedrooms filling up with dust, right? I've got a pool that's uh, 50 feet long, but I just sit in the spa down at the other end. I mean, we should have a, a, a nice things, a car that starts when you push the button and, and a, a home with a roof that doesn't leak and nice clothes and good food and the ability to go out and have fun and entertain ourselves. But once you get what you need, what good is more? Yeah, true. So true. Do we really need a, a billion dollars? Or ten billion dollars. If I if I have ten billion dollars, how does getting twenty billion dollars make me any happier? Unless I give it all away, mm -hmm. yeah. Feed hungry people, or build schools, or create jobs, or something. And yet, most really wealthy people just—it's like heroin addiction. They just want more, and they never get a satisfying fix. Yeah. So true. Yeah, it takes, again, self-awareness. It, it takes a, a level of consciousness to live um, this life this way. Well, you asked wisdom. That's, that's, that's wisdom, starting with there is no separation. Uh, love heals, redeems, harmonizes, and unites. Uh, laws of impermanence that nothing physical lasts. These principles constitute wisdom in the, in the way it's used in philosophy. Right. That's one of the things that's so hard for us to do, to love but not cling to love, right? To help but not cling to that satisfaction that comes from helping others. It's a, an amazing practice um, not to cling to anything, not to attach to anything, but still be present and give at all, like love as if you're going to die tomorrow, but uh, at the same time, let everything that you love free to be and accept whatever they do with that love. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with you, and it is difficult, again, because we rely on our physical senses and we believe that separation is real, so we hold on. Uh, but the truth is you don't need to hold on to love because it's everywhere equally present. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is a profound, profound concept. It's a, it's a wisdom concept that love is everywhere, so you don't have to hold on. Uh, all holding on, clinging, as you call it, clutching, uh, all tension in the body is a fear response. And so an attempt to hold on to love is a fear that you're going to lose it. So we say, why are you holding on so tight? 
to this thing that you love or this person that you love or this pet that you love, well, it's because in the back of their mind, they know everything's impermanent. They're going to sooner or later lose it all. And yet, that's not love. Any holding on is fear, and fear is the antithesis of love. Fear is what we don't know. Love is what we do know. When people say to me, Michael, what does it mean when we hear these admonitions that love drives out fear? How does that work? And I say, fear is what you do not understand. It's unawareness. It's not danger. If, if what you're afraid of appears dangerous, the fear is about what you don't know about the apparent danger. And most of the time, danger is not involved at all. Hey, Michael, what are you worried about? I don't know. Well, that's the point. That's what fear is. On the other hand, love is understanding, as we've been saying here for a few minutes. So love drives out fear in the same way understanding drives out ignorance in the same way that shining a flashlight into a shadow dissipates the darkness. Because darkness is not a force, it's the absence of light. And ignorance is not a force, it's the absence of understanding, and fear is not a force, it's the absence of love. Wow. I've never heard it that way. That's beautiful. It's basic physics and metaphysics. You see, these are, they're, they're polarities, but they're not opposing forces. One is a force, the other is the absence of that, redemp that, that redemptive energy or spirit. Love redeems and heals. Fear doesn't do anything except degrade and destroy. But it, it's, it's a great motivator. We see politicians using fear. We see parents using fear. We see religious preachers using fear and teachers and my football coach in high school and they all use fear because it's a very effective way to motivate people much easier than using love to motivate people but the problem is it extracts a horrible horrible destructive and demeaning price yeah. so yeah. Much of our temptation is to use fear and threats and um, try to gain leverage in that way rather than the more, admittedly, more difficult but more elegant uh, love. The, the difference being fear is a motive that moves you away from what you don't want, while love moves you toward what you do want. Mm, right. By the way, that's the difference between instinct and intuition. People often call their intuition a gut feeling. Intuition is a heartfelt feeling. The gut feeling is, oh no, the intuition of the heart is, oh boy. So the gut tells you to run away. It's the herd mentality or the, the mob instinct. That's the gut. It's down in the first chakra. But intuition is fourth chakra, or aspiring to the fourth. It could be high solar plexus, 
or heart chakra. It's much more refined, has a whole different feeling. It arrives as light. It's enlightening. Aha! What a beautiful understanding brought all these things together for me. But the gut instinct is, oh no, this is dangerous. This does not feel good. Turn, run away, run away. True. So true, Mike. Few people talk <laughs> about that distinction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You talked earlier about reincarnation. This is something that you believe in. Is that a religious concept? How do we know reincarnation is something, quotes and quotes, real? You don't. (laughs) You don't. Most people don't. With, With enough study and practice, there are teachers who have insisted that they remember their past lives. Sometimes very young children will talk about other lifetimes. There's a great story. I don't know if it's even true, I must admit, but it's a beautiful story about a a mother who hears rather late at night. She's already put the newborn baby to bed, and she hears the three-year-old coming down the hall, three, three and a half years old. And she stands back in the shadows until the three-year-old enters the baby's room, her little brother. And then she moves toward the door, but stays hidden, just close enough to be able to hear her three-year-old ask the baby, Billy, Billy, tell me about heaven. I'm beginning to forget. See? So there is, a, upon incarnation, apparently a great forgetting, which is necessary because if you, if you had all the answers, you'd never learn. And so the idea that if we look at physics, which is not a belief system, but hardcore empirical science and, and provable by repetition, um, All material things are impermanent. They all rot, decay, uh, corrode, rust, fade away. And uh, so that's pretty easy to accept. Energy, we're told, on the other hand, can never be created or destroyed. So somebody who has just a couple of years of science knows that, as Einstein says in E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, that mass is a product of, a function of energy. And the E is capitalized, but the M for mass or matter is not capitalized. So the energy is primary. It's eternal and infinite. And so a spirit or the soul, which is a matrix of spiritual energy, is indeed energy then it can't be destroyed but according to basic, undebatable, eminently reliable physics. You can't destroy energy. Consciousness or awareness is energy. So it can't be destroyed. So it's the only thing that gives the universe any kind of pattern or meaning is for this energy to expand, for it to, as consciousness, evolve and grow. I think what we are are like uh, ambassadors or liaisons of divine source going out and facing fear and redeeming it with love. That's our job. 
We work for the boss, who is not a separate entity, separate entity on a cloud, a man on a cloud, but rather a uh, magnetic field, a coherent field of energy that is spread across the entire universe, which continues to expand, and the rate of its expansion is accelerating more and more and more and more. We don't understand how or why. But our job is to be an emanation or a fragment of that wholeness, of that oneness, and go out into unknown and therefore frightening situations and redeem that fear and ignorance with love and understanding. That's, to me, it's that simple. That's what we, that's who we are. That's what we do. Wow. And if we don't do that, then <laughs> there's, we just keep coming back. I mean, this is hell. Hell is not some other place. This is it. And our job is to bring uh, heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to bring heaven to the earth plane and replace this hell where, every, where we lose everything and everything hurts. Not everything, but a lot of things. <laughs> where a lot of things hurt and we lose everything. And then make a heaven of this place and thus evolution, expansion, growth on a personal level, on a soul level, on a universal level. And that's not religion. That's spirituality. But it's not religion. I would say so. The way you speak, um, I can feel the, um, you call it energy, the presence of that. But that could be also something that we wish. It could be, we all wanted to continue, right? We all want, we have this desire to, to be something. Do you wish for um, you as you know yourself in this lifetime to continue? Well, again, as I know myself has two basic levels, the egoic Michael Benner, this body, this face, the particular interests I have, my personality, my loves, my fears, um, that that's going to all go away when I die. That that self will not exist. The other self, the higher self, the spiritual self, is just consciousness or awareness, and it will contain the experience and the memories of this lifetime and all my other lifetimes. But it'll reincarnate. Maybe not. Maybe I'll move to another level. I don't know. Um, doesn't much matter to me, actually. I feel like I'm growing, and whatever the universe has in store with me, I'm okay with it. I'm on board. I'm not afraid anymore. See, That's I, I, I have no more fear. I have no more fear, and if I do have a concern or I feel anxious or nervous, I've learned, and this is what my book, Fearless Intelligence, is all about. I learned to turn and face it and use it as a guide to harvest the lesson and the insight that's available. Because again, what fear is, is an, is an emotional response to ignorance and confusion and unawareness. 
And only by facing it and embracing it and moving into it will I understand what I don't understand. Will I become aware of what I am unaware of, you see? Yeah, not confusing that with being afraid of, like somebody said, being afraid of fighting a war and then you just fight a war because you want to know what, you want to face your fear. I'm afraid of heights, so I'm going to jump. I don't know, do that. They jump bridges, I think. There's a lot of things that people do. They jump out of a, pl of a plane. So that doesn't make sense to me, uh, that kind of way of facing fears. But Yeah, and you learn along the way. I mean, if you fall off the horse and you say, well, I better get back on the horse, uh, I would think about why I fell off the horse and what I could learn. So otherwise, you're just a fool. But... On the other hand, what people call failure, you can see as an opportunity to learn. And then there is no failure except quitting. And if you don't quit and are open to learning and you're humble, you just keep moving up the ladder. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Is there a difference, Michael, between consciousness and awareness? There is. There is. It's very esoteric. And not everybody agrees, but generally, consciousness is relative and awareness is absolute. Consciousness is of something. And we could say, I am aware of this, but consciousness is awareness upon an object, a relationship, a circumstance, a situation, a feeling, a thought. Um, awareness is more pure. Esoterically, it's described as effulgence, which is brilliant shining. And awareness mm -hmm. in this sense is capitalized. It corresponds to a war the absolute, which is a uh, word in philosophy for God, when a philosopher wishes to describe divinity without personifying it as a man on a cloud, uh, because that's so insulting so, to so many enlightened beings. And when somebody asks a philosopher, do you believe in God? They want to say yes, but they're offended by the, the elementary school idea on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, that God is out there living outside its creation, very far away, very remote, and separate. That God is separate too. And uh, that's monotheism. Monism is the idea that the ultimate source, uh, divinity, is within everything, that everything is in everything. So, um, <laughs> it's a little imminent and transcendent is one way it's described that the one is in every seemingly separate thing and every seemingly separated thing is in the one so it's pantheism and the reverse of pantheism that all in physical nature is divine that God is in everything, but everything is contained within God, and both things are true. So there is no separation again. And that, again, takes a little bit of work. You can't just be uh, 
60 minute once a week religious person and uh, understand that you've got to you've got to dedicate yourself to some study yeah coming to my last questions to you will be a few of them and the first one is describe life in one word wow joy hmm. yeah what is another word for healing love How do we become our own best friend? Love yourself, but not the ego. Think of who you were as a four-year-old. Close your eyes, meditate, breathe, relax, and visualize yourself as a four-year-old running into your arms. Embrace yourself as a four-year-old. Feel your heart opening and let the love in. Remember, What a beautiful child you are. Not so much that you were, but that you still are. Mind can hold that duality that you've become an adult, but like the rings of a tree, everyone you've ever been is still available to you and within you. And tell that four-year-old self, that he or she is the most lovable part of you and you want her to live forever in your heart and visit her or him at the end or the beginning of every meditation you do. Because if I told you to sit in front of a mirror and say, I love you to the person reflected in the mirror, you'd never do it and it wouldn't have any value anyway. But to think of yourself as a four-year-old That's just so beautiful, and there's just no question of how lovable and precious that wide-eyed passion for life is until we go off to school and get judged. Right. Wow. True. Um, what is to have a clear mind? Clear is the opposite of not foggy. It means to, um, it's a lucidity, it's to recognize, just like focusing a lens, you go back and forth and back and forth and suddenly it gets crisp and the edges are finely delineated and the colors are more vivid and present. And so the information you seek to recognize or to draw upon The memories you wish to recall are all present and available and whole. They are cohesive. They fit together. You don't have to work um, to make sense of things. That either or, this or that, to a clear mind, becomes this and that. What is to be strong? Well, I think to recognize that we're spirit, that we're peace and love, that we are infinite and eternal, um, and that these physical shells are merely an appearance that we take for a short time. Just as we are not the house we live in, the car we drive, or the clothes we wear, though I know people who believe they are. 
we are not these fleshy bodies made out of what we've had to eat for the last few years. So strength goes way beyond strong bones and powerful muscles or even physical vitality to a strong heart and mind. A wisdom. Wisdom is strength. Yeah. yeah, yes. A thousand times to that. If you knew you would die soon, <laughs> meaning losing the body, would you change anything about yourself or your life? <laughs> I'm 71 years old later this year. 72 years old, I don't know how long I will live. And so, again, I, I see myself as on the path, but there are no, no, there are no major changes that at this point in my life. Uh, if I felt I needed to make the change, I've, I've already made it pretty much. I, I try to be kinder and more loving every day to my wife and others, and that's a daily process more than a change. And I fall short sometimes, but I just keep working at it. It's a practice. Right. That's right. What are three things about life you know for sure, Michael? That it transcends physical death. That the meaning of life is growth. Hmm. And that the ultimate reality is love, not as an emotion, but as that cohesive, magnetic, attractive, magnetic force hmm. that binds yeah, everything yeah. to every other thing. Where can we find more information about you, your books, your what do you do with services in future projects? Thank you. I do private counseling and training uh, by telephone with uh, people all over the world, sometimes Skype or FaceTime or WhatsApp or Zoom, and uh, usually one-hour sessions, sometimes just one, sometimes quite a few ongoing. It's up to the individual. Um, counseling, training, and coaching. I'm a hypnotherapist. I use a lot of visualization or guided imagery and meditation exercises as practical uh, tools and techniques. Uh, you can find out about me at michaelbenner.com. That leads to a number of other websites, website about my podcast and my book and counseling and training and the business work I do. Michael Benner, B-E-N-N-E-R.com. And my book is Fearless Intelligence, so you can read about that in a blurb and an excerpt uh, at fearlessintelligence.com. It's that simple. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael, for your presence and for this conversation. Well, Valerie, thank you. Uh, <laughs> you're an exceptional interviewer, and I love the questions you ask. They're difficult, but I absolutely <laughs> love it. And I... Uh, I've enjoyed meeting you and being on your program, and I hope we can do it again sometime. It'd be great. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so great. much again. Blessings and peace. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.
you for listening. To learn more about Michael Banner, please visit his websites, michaelbanner.com and fearlessintelligence.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.